0: The Inadvisable Trapdoor
1: destruction
0: it shows that earth cannot sustain present population and industrial growth for much more than a few decades
1: we fear this if I was God for one day I'd get rid all machines and save this world
0: from destruction that's what I mean
1: I'm in the present, but I'm not in the present. I'm in the future. Don't you believe in anything? I used to believe there was good in the world, hope for the future. The future's not so bad. Have faith in me. But all you can see is the tip of the iceberg, the present, the tedious here and now. What you're incapable of seeing is the rest of time, the rest of the iceberg. The past and the future, my future, which is a very interesting place to be. The end of the world is nigh, bride, the game is up!
0: I don't believe that. The inadvisable trapdoor is sponsored by that thing that happens when you're falling asleep and you sort of dream you've tripped over, and you wake up with a start. (gasps) Do you get to sleep quite easily? Sleep right through? Is that getting boring? Then why not try? That thing that happens when you're falling asleep and you sort of dream you've tripped over and you wake up with a start.
1: <clears throat>
0: that thing that happens when you're falling asleep and you sort of dream you've tripped over and you wake up with a start. <sighs> Making falling asleep more interesting since the evolution of the prefrontal cortex. Now available for dogs. <coughs> In February of 1983, John Sullivan was preparing for the third series of Only Fools and Horses. Ratings for the second series had been good and a potential joint deal between the BBC and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation floated the idea of a vastly increased budget. Sullivan's scripts became much more ambitious and although the deal fell through, some scenes were filmed for episodes that had to be scrapped Due to the lack of money, one such episode was one million Rodneys. Right, come, on,
1: come on, come on, let's have it on. Get it, on. Get it in here, That's it. Right, come on, careful, careful, be careful. Oh, it's yeah. all right. You me. Come on there. Mind your own, your granddad. That's all I say.
0: Del gets hold of 300 Taiwanese prototype teleport machines, and tries to persuade Rodney to travel through one.
1: Is Nick Del? I'm no, not doing it if it's nicked. No, Rodney, it is not nicked. Believe me. No, 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 it's bankrupt stock. I bought two gross as a job lot. Right? Come on. Trust me.
0: But Rodney's not convinced, so Dell takes him to their mother's graveside, where Rodney outlines his objections.
1: What are you going on about? Well, look, we're walking straight into the unknown here, aren't we? I mean, you don't know what strange dark powers we might evoke. Oh, give over, you tart.
0: Back in the flat, Rodney comes round to the idea.
1: Yeah, all right, I'll give it a whirl. Good boy. You know it makes sense, don't you? Oi, but we do a proper job, right? No budging. Of course not. What do you take me for, eh?
0: Inside the machine, Rodney has second thoughts.
1: I could die, you know.
0: Dell throws the switch and the machine leaps into action.
1: I've got a bit of a problem. Yeah, yeah. Like Del, Del. Del, just sum it up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it a bloody. Right. Wait, Del, you know I'd like to. Wait. Wait, Del. Del, I could, I could die, die on in I've got a bit of a problem.
0: Del. Sullivan had dreams of making serious action movies like Sam Peckinpah, and the script ends in a bloodbath, with Del and Grandad having to shoot all the extra Rodneys.
1: <laughs> Shut it, Rodney. Shut it.
0: Leonard Pierce hated the violent script so much, he faked his own death to get out of his contract. Oh, yeah, you are a wally, you really are. <laughs> Gowan Fool Me Twice Shane Ritchie. Three times, uh, shameful, neighbors. shameful neighbors. The inadvisable trapdoor is sponsored by that thing that happens when you misjudge a set of stairs and try to climb an extra one. I used to climb him from base to summit climb him with ropes and crampons climb him alone and unsupported I used to climb him tried to knock me down, he tried so desperately, but I ascended, avoiding the madly swinging trumpet, and at the summit, I would declare, I'm the king of Roy Castle. And you're the Dirty Rascal. No! He'd shout back. I am not a dirty rascal! I am a record breaker! Dedication. I'd repeat my mantra. Dedication. Dedication. And Cheryl Baker collapsed in abject fear. Desperately scrabbling at her skirt. Hoping in vain to rip it off. To reveal a shorter one. Her Reflex Defense Mechanism Dedication! Dedication! Dedication!
1: I didn't want to be at a party with Oasis and tell them about my Chinese vertical flute and meditating, and reading a book by Crowley. I did want to, but there was no way at 19 that was going to happen. It was... I need to get a cagoule. I am autistic. So I, I come with a warning of great intensity and rigidity. <laughs> <laughs> My older brother, who was, he was 10 years older than me, his girlfriend at the time um, was a witch and heavily immersed in pagan studies she would often read to me from vinyl uh gatefold sleeves of all kinds of bands and then pointing out the mysticism mother's harbor had a lyric about um i i hide in the water but i need to breathe and um and tracy started telling me how this was like cancerians and i was a cancerian and she was a cancerian and and then this whole discussion about feminine energy and water and Avalon and Ladies of Lakes, and suddenly I had the, the, a copy of Marion Bradley's with uh, uh, the Mists of Avalon, and this was like twelve years old, fully converted into the concept that even though uh, we were living in a sort of patriarchal society, it was a mistake. <laughs> Eventually, I saw a sign for Obod, you know, the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, and it had a join, join the order thing, at, on the pinboard in Mysteries, and I took the pamphlet and, and that went back in my satchel on the plane back to Spain, and I, I got the pamphlet out and read it to my mum and said, I want to be a druid, and... Uh, i guess i was 13 at this point and she said well all right well what do you need to do and i said well if it looks like it's i think 12 pound a month and they're going to th- send me gwers which is like a, the welsh word for the lessons and, uh, and so she did that she, for me she totally went with whatever i was up to my mum, you know and uh, and so philip cargon Then wrote a letter said we're thrilled to uh, to have you join the order back in 1988, and every month I get my my books of rituals that I would do on my own in my little room in Spain, and uh, and that became serious and I I believed it would take me back to England which is where my heart was, and even better back to. Avalon and Glastonbury which was something by this point where I had pictures on the wall of the tour and, and, and the tower and I was drawing them everywhere do you remember that program called Chocky that used to write draw these alien pictures of this weird triangle I was like that with Glastonbury tour there never said just had a f- couple of postcards <laughs> <And> <laughs> it was it was Looking back on it now, I just can see my mum was just in hysterics. When it comes to magic and what we understand of what it is, I think there is something communicating with you. Communicating with you through symbols, hounds sometimes, and just through fear and all the kind of things that um, institutions would just call bollocks, done for centuries. Really believe that there is there's a part of the world that isn't human that is talking to us if we listen through the whole Britpop, rock and roll extravagance eaten up and out the other end to deep, deep drug addiction friend's mother, my girlfriend at the time of an esoteric And thought, well, if we could get him to go somewhere to reconnect with his spiritual beliefs about music and energy, then maybe he will get better. And so they introduced me to this monastery in Thailand, monastery where they make music from following patterns in nature, out of stones and rocks and the mountains. So, this was a really clever ploy to get someone who was living in Soho and a lot of serious drugs day and night functioning, but you know, on another plane altogether uh, to sort of go, Oh, oh, right, that sounds good. And of course, the monks ran a detox center as well, rehabilitation unit, which had a 66% success rate, which it still does. So I was flown to Thailand to have this free treatment. Uh, and did the treatment in the monastery uh, for three weeks and three days. And during that time, I kind of became so close to the monks and I've discovered through divination uh, a clairvoyant abbot of the monastery, uh, who my father was. I'd never known who my father was, and I had to go 7,000 miles around the world to meet some monks living in small kutis up a mountain to find out. And it was all true, and it was all real. My my mother couldn't remember my father's surname. Uh, she was. A radical lesbian that just wanted to have a child. <laughs> you know, in the seventies. So, so there was never any, any you know, uh, way of finding out who he was. But we found him with, um, you know, the help of a hundred monks and twenty nuns, who were all I didn't know at the time, known as the Renegade Monastery, who didn't follow uh, the, the Buddhist ways of the rest of the country. They had some other spooky stuff, which was. Um, Made very clear to me when I saw the abbot of the monastery, who's never been outside of Thailand, draw a picture of Stonehenge on someone's back. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of like, oh, hang on a minute. So when I was 14, I was joining the Druids. Now I'm with actual Druids in the jungle in Thailand tree monks uh, although in other buddhist circles they call them jungle monks which is quite funny the magical practices of those monks in tamkrabok which is what it's called is kata is words that you must never speak but that you are given on a piece of paper by someone else and you eat the paper and these words accumulate energy and you set intentions with them. And so I've been carrying around some words in my head for like 20 years now. And um, and they said, when you start doing this, some, some strange things may happen. So, you know, don't worry. It means that you're just connecting to that other portal. And really did. And I had some far out dreams when I fu- came back to England from living in the monastery for whatever three months and uh, um, I I had dream a dream of a, a young girl crying for help. Just so real. It wasn't like a dream. It was real. And I woke up the next morning, my mother was there and I told her about it. And I said, I just really frightened that something's happened. Anyway, I down old Compton Street to get a newspaper for my mum that morning. The girl that was in the dream was on the front page of the paper, and she'd been uh, in Kensal Green or somewhere in West London uh, because her father was a crack dealer, and there was a whole kind of drugs madness, gang sort of situation. And it was th- without a doubt it was her, and I was, I was immediately in that space of. I I could have done something, and I had to call the monastery and speak to some of the head monks and say, what's going on? I I can't live like this (laughs) for the rest of my life. And they said, they won't be like that all the time, but you just come back, and these things will be very powerfully active uh, within you. So that took me weeks to kind of get over that. And of course, a lesson in the fact that I'd been, before that, abusing stimulants so there's a personal kind of whoa. there's the other bit that I didn't see when I was having a wild night you know yeah it was was like an instant kind of you got clean now let's keep up with it because this is what's going on and what has always been going on while you were not looking after yourself
0: Visible Trapped or is sponsored by, y- you could have sworn you got some tea left in the mug, but no, you finished it. I could have sworn I'd got some tea left in that mug. Nope, I finished it. The tune I always think of when anyone mentions Doctor Who is the high-pitched one. The high-pitched one. Oh yes, well that was done on this machine here, the high-pitched one. Well, the, tedious thing to do, isn't it? <sighs> the Inadvisable Trapdoor. The next part of the podcast contains brutal and savage descriptions of brutal and savage murders. If you do not want to hear brutal and savage descriptions of brutal and savage murders, Skip to the end. The Inadvisable Trapdoor presents Winston Churchill Was Jack the Ripper, a true crime podcast investigation by me, Andrew O'Neill. Episode 3 The Murders Begin. And uh, some other stuff happens, too. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Kelly. Five women are commonly believed to have been murdered in the autumn of 1888 by the killer known in the press as Jack the Ripper. The first canonical Ripper murder, that of Mary Ann or Polly Nichols, took place on the 31st of August, 1888. But many more women were attacked and murdered in and around Whitechapel before and after these five. On the 25th of February, Annie Millwood was admitted to the Whitechapel workhouse infirmary with multiple stab wounds to her lower torso. On March the 28th, Ada Wilson was stabbed in the throat by a man who'd knocked at her door and demanded money. Both women survived their attacks. Violence against women was so commonplace in Whitechapel, it was seldom worthy of press attention. In the early hours of the 3rd of April, a woman called Emma Smith was brutally attacked by three men on the corner of Osborne Street and Brick Lane. They beat and robbed her and forced a blunt object inside her, rupturing her peritoneum. The level of violence suggests it was a gang attack. She was almost certainly being extorted. Now, Emma Smith was absolutely hard as nails. After being attacked in this brutal way, instead of going straight to hospital, she walked home, using her woollen scarf to stem the bleeding. The deputy in charge of her lodging house, Mary Russell, and another lodger, Annie Lee, walked her to the London Hospital on Whitechapel Road, where she slipped into a coma, and four days later, she died. In the late hours of the 6th of August, Martha Tabram had been drinking with her friend Mary Ann Connolly and two soldiers in the Two Brewers. A little before midnight, they paired off and headed to separate alleyways. At 4.45am, Martha was found dead. She'd been stabbed 39 times in her chest, belly and groin. No one was arrested for either of these horrific killings. There is nothing to connect them beyond geography and the gender and circumstances of the victims. It wasn't until the end of August that a 13-year-old aristocrat and future politician would take up residence in Whitechapel and a third murder would draw the world's attention to its dangerous streets. Some writers extend the autumn of terror well into the 1890s. Gorilla ripperologist Barry Chibnall blames Jack the Ripper for all deaths that ever occurred in Whitechapel, including plague victims, those who died of old age, and people trampled by horses. He also blames Jack the Ripper for his own run of bad luck in 1974, during which he lost his dad's car keys, his action man whistle, and his signed photograph of the banana splits. He also blames the Ripper for his current spell of gout. I I just don't think we can rule out the possibility that Jack the Ripper is still around, you know. People in the Bible live three, four hundred years. That's that's written by Moses. Uh, You know, maybe the killer is still around. feeds me brandy snaps and red meat while I'm asleep. That's why I've got this gout. God, it really hurts. Even in 1888, murder was nothing new. People had been committing murder as far back as Bible times. Cain, the bastard son of Eve and Samael, and the first human born of woman, was a murderer. Not professionally. He wasn't, like, an assassin. There weren't nearly enough people for that. It was only his mum and dad and later on his dorky brother Abel. Cain made it clear to his whole family he'd be very willing to professionally kill any of them for money and even bought one of those guns that come in a briefcase that you have to assemble in a hotel room. But none of his family had any money, just like cattle and that. Kane soon abandoned his dream of becoming an assassin and instead decided to be a marine biologist because he really liked sharks. Unfortunately, he was rubbish at maths, so he didn't get any further than GCSE double science. He, he got a C for that, though, so, you know, two Cs. Kane eventually murdered his brother, Abel. After a series of territorial arguments, God made them draw a line down the middle of their bedroom. But Abel's side had the Bumper Book of Sharks, which Cain really wanted to read. "'What, again?' said Abel. "'Yes, actually,' said Cain, and began screwing the barrel into his rifle. After the murder, God cursed Cain, banning him from the Sea Life Centre and hiding his Blue Planet DVDs. For most of human existence, Murder has been seen as a sort of benign practice, with no real proven harms or side effects. Indeed, murder was a popular hobby among the aristocracy as late as the 1830s. The young Queen Victoria used to go a-murdering on Prime Minister Lord Melbourne's estate, which was specially stocked with pheasants and geese and the poor With the boom in spiritualism in the 1870s people began to hear reports from the dead with the boom in spiritualism in the 1870s people began to hear reports from the dead and discovered to their horror that being murdered really hurt simultaneously advances in medical science began to prove that murder was a leading cause of premature death After hearing a rousing and emotional speech to Parliament in which the voice was channelled of Elsie Tripley, a murdered woman from Fife, William Gladstone abolished murder, making it illegal and punishable with a small fine. As a result, murder went underground. Illegal murder clubs sprouted up, pairing people who wanted to be murdered with those who wanted to murder and providing them with dreadful basements and sharp knives. The desire to be murdered was easily cured through the diligent application of murder. Unfortunately, the stock of people wanting to be murdered quickly ran out, leading frustrated murderers to their own horrible conclusions.
1: I have nothing to offer but blood.
0: The Inadvisable Trapdoor is written and produced by me. Andrew O'Neill. Also appearing were Will Hodgson, Sharon Something, Sarah Freeman, Philip Hutchinson, CJ Hooper. The occult segment was the wonderful musician, filmmaker and composer Tim Arnold. His new album, Super Connected, is out now and he's always doing loads of gigs and interesting stuff. Find him at timarnold.co.uk and you can google him to find his social media. The full interview with Tim in which we discuss alchemy, his fascinating bohemian upbringing, the psychogeography of Soho and lots more is up on my Patreon. patreon.com/androniel. If you've enjoyed The inadvisable Trapdoor, please consider paying me for it, perhaps for the price of an oat milk latte per month. Patreon allows me to make the show I want to make without having to pitch it to small-minded dickheads. Now, if you're skint, of course, the podcast is free. It's a gift to you, paid for by the people who can afford it. But mainly, if you enjoyed The inevitable trapdoor, please tell people about it. Spread the word, post about it on social media, and also please like and subscribe and leave a lovely review. As an independent outsider artist, the algorithm is the battle.
1: Screenshot
0: the podcast artwork and tell your like-minded friends. Thank you for listening. The trap trapdoor is closing. Mind your fingers.